Today we're talking with Professor Wendy Harcourt, who focuses on studying gender, feminism, environment, and degrowth. We're going to talk about how is feminism connected to uh, environment and what we can do to progress within that movement um, for a more equal and just society. So without further ado, let's hear her story and hope you enjoy. First of all, I would like to say thank you for uh, having time for us and for meeting us here. It's really great to, to have you as a guest. And we always start the podcast with a little introduction. So if you could um, say a bit about your life and your work and uh, what you focus on. Well, thank you for having me. Um, I'm at the International Institute of Social Studies, which is a, a faculty in of Erasmus University Rotterdam, but we're actually in The Hague. Um, and I've been here since um, nine years now. And uh, I'm a professor of gender diversity and sustainable development. So at ISS, I um, teach um, the master's course on critical um, theories of development. And I also run a course called Encounters. And um, my research is really looking at feminist political ecology, and that's specifically about how communities resist um, climate change and all the environmental destruction that we're facing now. And I have a big EU project with 15 PhDs working on that. And apart from that, I'm very interested in issues of health, um, what I call body politics, and also I think you would say I apply feminist thinking to development issues. That's perhaps the best way to describe me. Um, and I've been working on those issues for many years outside of academe. I was a part of an international based in Rome for many years, which was doing advocacy at the UN level, but also um, doing small research projects, international research projects on environment and gender and on, I would say, uh, yeah, how, how people are resisting the big global issues. So that, that's my background more or less. And how did you come to study uh, those issues? Because I uh, presume that uh, back when you started studying, this wasn't such a popular topic as it is right now. You didn't have feminism in popular culture. Uh, so what, what interested uh, you to study those issues? Well, I always like to say, I think I was born a feminist in that my grandmother and my mother were very concerned about women's rights and my father who was also an academic um, was also very concerned about justice issues um, so i was brought up in a family in australia that was really concerned about um yeah making the world a, a better place if you like and i was an environmental activist and also a feminist particularly looking at gender-based violence um, so even though in you're right that there wasn't um, the same amount of courses you can do um, on feminism or on gender or even on environment. But certainly there were people, of course, writing and thinking about that. So that when I was doing my courses, and I actually specialize in history, um, I could bring those concerns in because I could look at the beginnings of those ideas, the beginnings of when there was feminism in the late 19th century, the beginnings of when there was environmentalism, which was sort of more 
um, the way I looked at it more for, with Rachel Carson. So actually, I did bring my activism and interest into that into my um, both my undergraduate and my PhD work. And then I really left academe and then took that into, um, let's say, a more political arena. And then I brought it back. And it, what's nice for me is that all of the things that I did are now being taught rather than something you did on the side. So in that sense, you're, you're right. But um, how I came to ISS was because people knew of my writings that were not necessarily academic writings, but I was somebody who was raising these issues. And ISS is very much about societal relevance. So they were interested in me coming in and uh, I would say contributing what I've learned um, in society and I, of course, kept writing, so I was also able to um, bring in yeah, critical development theory and feminism as somebody that was sort of practicing it as well as somebody who was reading it. Um, and in that way, I've been very lucky in, in the institution and the community that I'm in. Um, and I would also add Erasmus as well, because um, I've also had opportunities to speak and be part of courses at the Erasmus University College, teaching gender, and also um, the honors courses, teaching both sustainability and gender. So today we're we're gonna have many topics about gender, but maybe we can start with a very basic for you question, but maybe not for every listener. Uh, what really is gender? How would you define it? And uh, what misunderstandings are there about gender? Well, of course, I can't tell you the misunderstandings that's going to be for other people, but how I understand it, I guess the basic thing is that it's not just referring to the biological sexual characteristics that means somebody's either female or male or transgender or intersex. Um, gender is really the socially determined ideas and practices of what it means to be female or male or other being very careful that it's not just a binary that there are it's a fluid category um, and it's not pre-given either it's not just a fact it's constructed and it's reproduced through different practices cultural practices economic practices policies and of course also actions and it does depend on the context in which you're in so to be male in say bangladesh working in a factory is going to mean something different to be um, female in the netherlands working in a factory for example um, so in that sense, it is very much about context, but it's also um, not only about society, about economics, about cultures, it's also inscribed on our bodies. So there is uh, not so much it's biological, but the way in which we understand ourselves and our bodies is gendered. And we also perform it. So I'm looking now in, in the, your room and the clothes you have hanging there, which are definitely feminine, um, chosen because that, what's fit, that fits your gender. You could have chosen any other sorts of clothes, but you are performing being a girl wearing that very pretty looking shirt that's hanging up there. So these are the sorts of things which uh, we just take for granted. So sometimes we don't even see it. But actually, the important thing is that they, they are dynamic and they change. For example, you could be wearing a different shirt, you could cut your hair, you could change the way you perform your gender. Um, but apart from just the individual, it also does depend on the places where you are, the technologies that impact you as well. So it is quite a complex um, issue. Um, so it's very important not just to say gender is about you know, some neat box of men and women 
and that's what we learned when we were a kid, but to recognize things change and the norms of what is to be a woman, what is to be a man, what is to be transgender is changing. And there are many different ways of us expressing our gender or our masculinity or femininity. But personally, I mean, that's a description really of what is gender. I'm really interested in the power, the gender power relations and the ways in which there are very hierarchical relations of power between men and women, which do tend to disadvantage women and younger people and people who do not conform to a certain norm of what it is to be masculine. And it's very much bound also by racism as well. So there are many issues that you can't just see gender separately once you start looking at power. But certainly there are a lot of gendered practices which perpetuate these sorts of inequalities in the household, in our communities, in the marketplace, and of course in the state. So it's complicated, gender is not simple. And at the same time, although we tend to relate gender to women, um, as I say, it's not just about women and men. Men also can be limited by gender norms, but there's also other forms of gender. And as I was trying to indicate before, gender doesn't operate on its own. It interacts with race, specifically with class, with ethnicity and age and ability as well. So you've, you've already touched a bit on the fact that um, it has changed over the years and it is changing how we see gender. Um, but um, what have you observed since you started um, teaching and also learning about gender and in the academia, what has changed uh, about the concept? Well, um, for me, there's been um, a switch from seeing feminism as just political, something outside the academe to being something that can be studied and studied carefully. And in fact, people realizing that you need to take into account gender difference gender power relations, if you are to understand a social or economic or cultural problem. So there's, if you like, been um, a greater acceptance of gender and an awareness of the gender bias when people don't see it in the same way that we're starting in these days to see, I mean, particularly here in the Netherlands, um, race as being very important as well. Um, I would say what's also changed is that when I was young, as I was describing, when I was a student, um, being a feminist, you had to give yourself all sorts of categories. You could be a radical feminist, a socialist feminist, an eco-feminist, a liberal feminist. And, and all of those things were actually quite important because that indicated how you understood feminism. And nowadays I see there's a shift because people now talk about intersectional feminism, indigenous feminism, environmental feminism, queer feminism. So there are different waves, if you like. And um, as I mentioned right at the beginning, um, in the early 20th century, you had maybe the first wave where women needed to get votes. That was very much a liberal feminism. And then the, I would say I was at the tail end of the second wave where people were talking about economic rights, about, and that was socialist feminism, about really even there was people wanting to have technological rights to choose to have children or not to have children. And also to choose not to be with men, so very anti-working with men, radical feminism, and then eco-feminism, which was much more about environment and feminism. Um, and I would say in the third wave, which is really now and beyond, you're talking about intersexual feminism, where people are very aware of how you can't talk about gender on its own, indigenous feminism, 
completely other ways of seeing um, that come not from a Western understanding of bodies or Western understanding of gender. And then queer feminism, which moves us away from heteronormative understandings. So for me, there's been um, a shift that's moved the political into academe. And what's very interesting for me now is that you can study that. So um, whereas when I was at university, you were a feminist, but you were, that was your personal choice, your political choice, but then you did history and you might've looked at women or you might've looked at issues which impacted on women. I looked at um, medical discourses, um, but it was very, there was no gender studies as such, right? Now there is, and it's, it, it's much more complex in many ways, um, because you have all these very many different understandings of how then you can be studying feminism and how you understand also gender. But for me, feminist theory is now in all branches of science. So that's something that's quite uh, exciting as well. So also in your research, you have focused on the uh, role that gender plays in uh, sustainability and uh, in uh, environmentalism and ecology. Um, maybe you could summarize a bit uh, how it is connected, if it is connected, I of course assume it is. Um, and is it, uh, is it an, an issue um, that uh, environment um, is maybe gender, like the issues of ecology, uh, maybe disadvantage women or uh, maybe don't include women, um, if you could share that perspective. Well, it's not about exclusion of women. I mean, that that's not really what feminism in when you talk about sustainability is about. It's more recognizing that there are different gendered roles, there are different engagements with natural resources and different ecological processes, which are determined by these gender power relations, if you remember that, which is a much more complex thing than just saying women and men. So you're really looking at questions of power social values of distribution and justice and you need to include gender in order to understand the problems of sustainability so you have to see that um, gender difference is really um, seen in the idea of nature itself um, it's seen in terms of how we can uh, interpret both the biological and social constructions of of environment and the ways in which gender has very different um, it's played out differently in different environments, the ways in which people even see nature um, as gendered. I mean, the mother earth, all of these things is a very um, special meaning for a place like in Ecuador, where people even have um, the rights of nature. So there's all of that issue of mother earth and being protected by the governments, etc. Complicated, but that's one way of looking at it. But also then in terms of um, women having a particular relationship to nature, um, often for various so social reasons, cultural reasons, women are in particular communities which maybe are more vulnerable. Um, for example, um, when in Brazil there are dams that are being built which um, have swept away riverine communities and it's often women who have not moved because they haven't moved for jobs are the ones that have to then deal with the loss of um, immediate loss of household with the flooding etc and often women are leading environmental movements and as i'm interested in power relations that's particularly what i'm um, looking at in my own research which is the ways in which um, women are really pushing for uh, environmental rights as part of their own concerns around gender equality and instead of for example talking about sustainability they would be talking about 
um, sorry, sustainable development, they'd be talking about sustainable and equitable economy rather than the green economy, for example. And they would also be thinking about the economy, not just in terms of market, but also in terms of ethical values in relation to nature, spirituality, the idea also of being in harmony with nature, working in solidarity, caring and sharing with others in the community. So in many cases, the ways in which we've talked about sustainability is very blind to those sorts of knowledges and blind to the gender impacts of what happens in terms of environmental destruction or climate change, as we call it. Um, and at the same time, it's not just about vulnerability, it's about women's agency. These are women who are leading a lot of the fights. And um, I've studied um, a lot of the ways in which women are sort of bring testimonies about what happened in their communities and how to bring those testimonies to a more global level so that people recognize that their experience is important, their emotions, their actual physical dislocation can't be ignored um, under this label of sustainable development. Um, and indeed questioning the whole dominant economic model, which leads to this idea of a green economy, but also leads to um, really a destruction of people's environments. So in that sense, I'm really interested again in um, the idea of, yeah, how do you make those changes aware of uh, gendered power relations, not only at the community level, but even at the UN level, where whose voices are being listened to, um, which experiences are counting. So people talk about finance without thinking about what it actually means for local people, for example, um, and the ways in which access and control to resources are determined in ways that don't see gender as important or women's work in the forest is not seen, whereas men's ownership of the land is seen, for example. Um, so I think I'm very interested in um, how different women do empower themselves, if you like, but also how we can think about sustainability in different ways that empowers them from the point of view of their community struggles to control resources and environment and get environmental protection. And that really means challenging a lot, you know, economic science, et cetera. Um, so those are the things that um, when you say sustainability and how it's related, it's deeply related. And um, so you, you said that you've researched how um, women uh, protect their environments and how the sustainability is understood by different women and maybe protected by different women. So what have you found? Um, because I presume that we in Europe, um, so I'm from Europe and you come from Australia, we have maybe a more Western perspective um, towards the, the environment and how we interact with it. Would you say that there are differences between how a woman uh, understand and how generally uh, gender is connected to environment? Or is that some kind of universal experience that uh, we want to protect our uh, environment and we are deeply connected with it? Well, I wouldn't want to say that only women are deeply connected to the environment, care for it, of course not. I think you're right though, you're pointing to different contexts matter so that people from who are living in the global South um, have had, um, of course, in the name of development, a lot of destruction of their environment and not all the benefits that people living in Europe have. But even if you come, I've lived a lot in Italy, if I compare Italy to the Netherlands or even to Poland, they all have very different histories and contexts and very different environments before we were talking about um, the landscape in the Netherlands, which is so man-made or 
human made. Um, very different from Australia, for example, which um, has only had white people there for um, a little over two centuries and has had um, indigenous Australians for, oh, you know, there oh, tens of thousands of dec you know, tens of thousands of years. And they know that landscape extraordinarily well. Um, it's part and parcel of, the, of, of their lives. So when they talk about um, country, that's them, they're, they're integrated into it. But at the same time, they're living with white settler Australians and there's a lot of contestation and difficulty. So for me, the Australian landscape is a very troubled one because of its history. And if you remember the fires some a year or so ago, no, a year ago, um, that was a lot because white settlers had not cared for the country in the way that the indigenous owners of the land understood. So it, 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 is, it is complicated. I would also say in the global south, there's a very big difference between those living in urban cities and those living in the rural areas. So it's not that it's universal, but definitely um, in each context, there are very different understandings of the environment and how to sustain it. The problem is the main economic model is apparently universal and everybody imagines that the only way for us to live is through, um, you know, post you know, very industrialized technological um, world, which is creating its own environments. It's creating climate change. It's created COVID. So these are the universal problems that we're all facing, but it impacts us all very differently depending on the histories and the context. And in that sense, um, yes, there's a gendered concern there because it, as I said, there's is a, definitely a, a patriarchal order that um, tends to see women um, in different ways than men often in a more oppressive way, but that doesn't mean it can't change. I think that's what feminism is about, is how to change that. And it isn't to say that there aren't men who are oppressed for, you know, for race, for maybe their sexuality, um, because they, their class, um, because of the history they've lived through too. So I think in that sense, what's to me very important is that we shift our understanding of um, sustainability away from, you know, how can we green the economy to be, how can we care for the environment? How can we care for others? And how can we live on the earth as more of a commons where we share it in common? Again, it's not universal. It's just that we need to see that we are sharing this as a finite planet and the limits have been reached. I mean, that's so clear now with every day we see now what's happening. The sad thing for me, having been an environmentalist for a long time and having done lots of actions, etc., I just really see that the people who are making the difference, I wish it's difficult to say this, but in many ways it's um, always been the same sorts of people and they tend to be the ones that are seeing the only way forward is through modern economics that has destroyed environment as if it's something you can just take up and use and have not valued other ways of living have just seen you know a western consumer way of living as the only way for everybody so in that sense i think we need to really break down the idea of universal truths and universal ways of of uh, understanding the environment and build something much more cooperative much more context valuing care, thinking about relations between peoples and nature. And for me, that's a big 
need huge need now but i've seen that for a long time but i think with covid even more so i think you've uh you've touched upon a, a subject that i have recently uh, been more aware of so um, a bit of context i don't eat meat for maybe seven years now um and i've always thought that oh this is this is a great way to care for environment but then they there have been indigenous communities they that have um eaten meat or other products for centuries for example the uh, inuit uh, communities in northern america and uh, the let's call them western people um are very shocked that they can eat seal and are you know cute and and we we love to see them in zoos but they they have a very different approach to to this um to this experience so they use everything they use every bit they are very um they they care for the things that they do in their environment and we don't have an understanding for that but um i i maybe have an, also another question um this is a very difficult process for us to understand that the ways in which we've been living are as maybe i'm not saying they are but maybe wrong that we need to fundamentally change the system and maybe give up some of our power and give up some of our economic advantage do you think it is really possible to have such a connected society it's interesting yeah nice question it's interesting that you you mentioned the inuit because of course they as you said they used everything and they understood um what were the limits of their environment and they were very respectful of the animals they killed and they understood for many many centuries what was going on of course they now have their environment has been destroyed not only the cute little seal pups that were battered to death for for coats or whatever um that the, the inuit people are losing their environments along it because of the, as you say, Western ways of being. So it's not a neutral thing that you're speaking about and it's nothing to do with eating meat It's to, in that sense. It's to do with understanding um, how to live with the environment. The thing is that, of course, we have, in a modern progress has been based on using environment, not living with the environment and exploiting and extracting from the environment. That's our whole logic. So I think people have now understood that that isn't possible and we do need to change it, including economists. I mean, I, I was being dismissive of the green economy, at least people are trying to speak about that. And there are subjects like ecological economics, etc., which are really trying to measure and understand it. But for me, perhaps uh, the thing that can help us change. I also, by the way, don't eat meat, um, but I do travel in aeroplanes. So, so I mean, we're all full of contradictions and, and it's turmoil there, right? So we, we need to be radically positioning ourselves, knowing what we can do and how we can do it. But I'm still learning, uh, and I'm sure you are as well, how to do that. Um, but I think it's not an individual thing. It's a, it's a collective thing. So um, one of the things that I'm have always done is work collaboratively. And um, at the moment I'm working with the uh, degrowth movement, um, one of these uh, rather misnomers because I think basically it's talking about how do we indeed change our lives so that we're living in 
good ways with uh, nature, but also with others, and also to live a good life. I mean, you don't want to all sit uh, freezing to death uh, um, because you can't use energy uh, resources because we've used them all up. It's how do we do it in time so that we can sustain energy? What are the kinds of ways we can do it? And obviously there are technologies and possibilities, but the thing is that we do have limits and there are, definitely a problem of redistribution, which is a bigger question than just us. But the degrowth uh, movement, um, we are going to be having a, a, a conference in August, end of August here in The Hague, the eighth international degrowth movement. It's somewhere between, a, um, I would say, a academic and an activist movement. It has a lot of e ecological economists, in fact, who have written a lot about it, um, but it has a lot of uh, young people specifically who are looking about looking to eat, to live differently, including being vegan or vegetarian, including um, not buying. And uh, it's easy here in the Netherlands, isn't it? Because everyone, for some reason, leaves all their furniture out on the street. But you know, trying to live ways which um, reduce the footprint. And we're holding um, a meeting. Uh, as I say in August, that's looking at caring communities for radical change. So you see, it's not about changing uh, necessarily the economy, like degrowing the economy. It's about how do you build um, communities that can make those changes um, by thinking through ways of flourishing rather than ways of um, being progressive or trying to get the latest technology. So what does flourishing mean at this moment? And what, how can care be understood? Because I think care is a key value that we've sort of lost. And COVID showed us how care workers were so important, right? Both in the home, also in the hospital, but also the people that were continuing keeping the food supply going. So you hope that COVID, I know we're all totally worn out with the whole process, but still, hopefully that's going to make us realize that health and caring for others is really central to the ways we can change. And maybe traveling for holidays somewhere else uh, is not necessary if you have a happy and joyful life where you are. So hopefully those sorts of things can change and uh, we can provide for all of all people if we all learn to um, not be so individualistic and greedy and the sort of neoliberal subject that thinks that the only way we can uh, prove ourselves is through uh, what we buy or what car we ride or what kind of luxurious uh, house we have or all these sorts of things. And I think uh, people of your age, it's really know, know that. I mean, there are many um, from, okay, Greta Thunberg is an obvious uh, and sort of iconic person, but there are many, many young people that are saying, you know, enough is enough, you know, we have to really make a change. So I think that those those shifts are happening, and again, you see, it's often young women as well, but not not only who are who are standing up and talking about these issues. So um, maybe I can go back a bit with my question and go back to feminist again, feminism again. Um, so you you've mentioned that we sometimes focus on the uh, feminism uh, in a sense that we want to obtain as much uh, as we can um, the kind of the liberal feminism which understands um, that women as you know uh, equal to men but in the sense that they want to have the same job opportunities and they want to earn the same money and they want to um, have as much um, 
they want to possess as much as men. Um, but we're seeing a bit of shift in that, uh, in the sense that uh, maybe women can, um, and generally anybody can choose um, to define themselves as they want. So maybe they don't want to um, have this kind of career. Maybe they want to focus on um, staying at home with their kids. And that's, that's also fine. That's also uh, who a feminism, feminist can be. So um, I see this as more of an intersectional feminism. So taking into account different perspectives and different uh, needs that women uh, and any other people might have. Um, so maybe I'm wrong in that, but if you could maybe um, explain a bit what is intersectional feminism. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I think you, you're still describing liberal feminism in the way that, for me, um, in the sense that you're saying it's personal choice to stay at home, whether you're a man or a woman, and that you, you can choose yourself to do, um, yeah, um, a, a, a fancy job if you want to, or wear the clothes you want to. That, that's still within a kind of individualized idea of choice. Whereas intersectional feminism is saying that actually those choices are determined by systems by structures so the fact that, that okay um you're white you're educated here in, in in the netherlands you speak at least english and polish i assume and possibly other language dutch i assume also so you are highly educated and so your choices are not because of you but because of the system where you are the education you've achieved your class your race probably um, I don't know your ethnicity, but um, maybe your religion as well. Um, and those are all important factors which indicate they intersect and those indicate what sorts of choices you can make. But it's not an individual. You can't choose not to be white or not to be educated at this point. You can educate yourself differently and you can um, act in solidarity with people, people of color, of course. But um, Intersexual feminism says that if you were black, if you were uh, not able to go to high school, if your parents were uh, migrants, um, if you could only barely speak uh, Dutch and because you never really learned it properly at school, this would really determine, uh, even as a woman, a very different set of choices. So the intersectional choices are not just about being a woman, but also about your class, your background, the history, um, of where you've come from in the case if you're a migrant or the class where you've been born into. All of that can shift, but only in certain conditions, of course. And the, the, the issue is there that um, one thing is to speak it, right? To, to speak the, those intersectional differences, but then how to change it is much more complex. So that goes back to uh, the issue of power relations and how do you change that kind of relationality between class, race, age, for that matter, I should have mentioned that too, to be, um, I don't know your, I don't know your age, but it certainly determines many things in your life, including who listens to you and who doesn't. Um, and same for me as an older person, I also see how that shifts and changes. So that's intersexual feminism, recognizing all of that. You experience it, your subjectivity, how you feel it is, is yourself, but it's determined by a system. So that's why you need politics, why you need to understand power, why you have to understand the economics and the social relations in order to change. It's not just about you saying, you know what, I'm going to wear um, you know, a, a man's suit tomorrow and I'm gonna to go for a Harvard degree. It doesn't work that way, does it? 
there's all sorts of other things determining it, some of which is gendered. So feminism in that sense um, is not, again, it's not a construct that just relies on women getting to the top, breaking the glass ceiling. It means huge amounts of changes if you're really looking for justice. And that's what I think intersectional justice, uh, sorry, intersectional feminism means. And what do you think we, so we're both sitting here and of course uh, have a lot of privilege because as you said, we're both white, uh, come from quite developed regions, um, have education, um, maybe have different possibilities than, than other people. Uh, what do you think that we can do in order to Well, most of all, it's not about help, is it? I think probably the first thing is not to think about help. I think it's about listening to other people's experience and being humble enough to realize that we wouldn't know because we haven't experienced it, but also learning from them. So reading, if you're studying, so not just reading um, sort of white male texts about how the economy works, see what else is being written by people who are critical of it from you know, um, Nigeria or from another another context. Um, I think being much more open to difference and much more open to um, that you might not know that actually maybe it's not the moment for you to step up. Maybe somebody else should come in and be able to give their experience. Maybe that's more me. I think when you're younger, it's hard enough. I mean, being young as well, you need your space as well. But I think that um, in terms of uh, racial difference, it is very much a, a point of stepping back. Um, but I mean, there are all sorts of differences. I think uh, um, coming from Poland, you have your particular history that needs to be heard. So it's to step back, but also to be in dialogue and to be in what is called allyship, you know, um, learn, bring in what you know, but not as the only way to know. So I think, I think, um, humbleness listening but at the same time being aware that you have your own knowledge you have the ability you have privilege and you can use that privilege but not to help anybody but to open spaces to have dialogue to work together so it's about the balance of of knowing yourself and uh, acknowledging what you have and what you are but also uh, discussing this with other people and giving them space to to share their knowledge of that's right. And, and, and being aware of your own positionality, which you, you just were, um, and the radical positionality, meaning that you can change and shift and you're not stuck in that particular way. I think that's also important. So do you think that this is the way that feminism will move forward? Is this the, the, the intersectionality and, um, and maybe the care uh, is uh, how we can progress within the feminist movement for a more equal and just society? Or do you think that uh, there's still maybe work to be done in other areas and we still focus a lot on the uh, financial uh, equality? I think the thing is, it's not feminism that's going to change everything. There's no universal truth there either. But um, certainly being aware of all the things we've spoken about, the intersectional justice and um, the different forms of feminism. I think being uh, paying attention to, um, yeah, I, of course we have to look at financial issues in the same way we have to look at environmental issues. So 
but it's it's the gender lens or the feminist lens it's not because you are a woman that you're going to naturally do it so it's a lot of understanding and learning to be done and of course as a professor i would say that i would want everybody to be thinking through with me these issues um and learning with me and i would be learning with them as well right so the these are things that um we're, it's still unfolding there's not that we've got some particular truth so at the same time having said that there's still um definitely violence there that is because of somebody's gender whether it's because or because of their age or because of their skin color so definitely there's still work to be done to fight against that very strong injustice right um, so I think those things are still very immediate and important. There's still harassment, sexual harassment, racial harassment, which I think we have to be vigilant to and more immediate than just studying and reading and, you know, being open to working with people. So, so it's on different fronts. But for me, um, again, it's not just you or me, it's in collaboration. So doing a podcast like this hopefully makes people think differently and that shifts and changes and but it's wherever you are, I think you can make those changes and um, you can be in a, yeah, you can be in shell and be a feminist, I guess, but you would have to really have to live with your conscience about what shell does in relation to, um, yeah, Nigerian um, extractivism and what it does to those people's lives. But you can still be paying attention and trying to make change where you are. I think this is sort of radical change that you want. You know, and then you should be talking and thinking it through and trying to see what change you can make aware of all those major economic and financial pressures that are there for you, which are also trapping you in a particular way of behaving as well. So it's, it, it, see, it's complicated how to do that, but, uh, um, and it, I, and I definitely think it, men are just as much working towards that sort of change and are just as aware of gender. And there's a lot of young men in particular that I know who feel very trapped by the sort of masculinist uh, imperative. And I think they're feminists as well, in the sense that they're really trying to get out of a norm which oppresses them in different ways, but nevertheless still does, right? So I think there's, it's very important that there's space there for that discussion. So I think with that thought, we can conclude the discussion. And thank you so much for bringing a more academic perspective because, um, for example, I have never had a academic course about feminism or gender, uh, although I have been to university for four years now. So uh, I think it's really important to discuss those topics on this level as well. Uh, so thank you so much for your time and for agreeing to come to the podcast. You're very welcome. <laughs> Thank you.